Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. The title in the bulletin is What Happened, and it actually fits together with all of chapter 3. But I think the title of this sermon is The Inception of Deception. The Inception of Deception. God designed you to be happy. It's been some time since I took our kids, or Robin and I together took our kids through the first catechism. Um, But question number 22 asks this question, in what condition did God make Adam and Eve? And in the nice, simple, short, pithy way, God made them holy and happy. And my thought was, if that's true, what happened? Why, on the whole, are so many people miserable? And again, the shorter this uh, first catechism gives a very nice, short, pithy answer. Question thirty-five: How did Adam and Eve change when they sinned? Answer. Instead of being holy and happy, they became sinful and miserable. Uh, This is a nice tool for the training of children, but it also has some very profound truths in it. The binding together of happiness with holiness and misery with sinfulness is one of the essential truths that you need to have in place to live out your Christian life. Satan, the world, and the devil, I mean, and your own flesh, are forever trying to reverse the two in your heart. In order to be happy, you must be sinful. And if you choose the path of holiness, you will be miserable. You see, in order to choose that which is sinful, you must first believe that what you are choosing has the ability to bring you happiness. You understand that? And that requires deception. Because the fountain of happiness is God. And God is holy. Genesis 3 describes to us the beginning of deception. And that's why I've entitled it the inception of deception. So if you would, follow along with me in your Bibles. We're going to just read verses 1 through 13. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, 
God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, Lord God, among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Sin is always preceded by deception. And deception begins with Satan. Our confession states, our first parents being seduced by the subtlety and temptation of Satan sinned. So I thought I might give you just a quick, brief overview of the scriptural perspective on Satan. Satan is a fallen angel. It means he was originally created by God and he was created good. And the Bible doesn't really give us much, if any, information about Satan's fall, how he became corrupted. When he comes onto the scene in Genesis 3, he's already evil. Jesus calls Satan the evil one. That's a a statement about who you are, right? The evil one. Uh, He is known as the adversary of God and man. He is the tempter. He is the deceiver. He's the father of lies. He is a murderer who is continually seeking someone to devour. He is the accuser of the brothers. He is the prince over all of the fallen angels that we now call demons. After Adam and Eve fall into sin, he's called the prince of this world or the god of this world. He is said to hold the power of death after the cross. He is called the prince of the power of the air. He is the spirit that is now at work in the children of disobedience. He takes believers even and holds them in darkness. Christians are warned against his wiles and commanded to resist him. There is nothing good you can say about Satan. He is not someone with whom you want to be friends. 
He is pure evil. The problem is, he never wants you to know his true character. And so, as 2 Corinthians 11 says, Satan disguises himself as the angel of light. In Genesis 3, he's not necessarily disguising himself as an angel of light, but he is disguising himself as a serpent. While it is obvious to you and I, as readers of Genesis 3, that the serpent is Satan, it is far from clear to Adam and Eve that the serpent is Satan. As far as they know, they are interacting with an animal in the creation. Verse 1, the serpent was more crafty than any of the beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. And now most of us associate snakes with evil. We know that the little physical creatures out there in the wilderness are not themselves morally evil, but there's still kind of a creepiness that fills most of us when we see snakes. But you have to understand that you should not read that feeling back into Adam and Eve. The serpent was not creepy to them. They didn't go, ooh, they should have been warned about that thing. That's dangerous. He is crafty, more crafty than any of the other animals, but that in itself is only a neutral term. It's not a bad term. It's taken as evil as time goes on because we know how crafty Satan is, but the term itself is neutral. The serpent doesn't look evil. doesn't even look like our snakes today. He's not slithering on the ground. He's just a creature and a smart one. Whether or not the, the serpent had its own ability to talk or whether it was actually being spoken through the serpent, I mean through Satan, open to some discussion. But the point is this. Satan shows up, but he does not want Eve to know his character. Imagine him showing up. I am the most evil being in all the universe, and here I am to lead you astray from God. It's not the way he shows up. And by the way, I hope as I go through this passage, although I'm not going to make connections continually to your lives, I hope you'll be able to go, oh yeah, that's what he does to me. Right? I hope you make that connection as we go through here. They are unsuspecting of evil. I think it's rather interesting that God doesn't even warn them. Oh, by the way, there's this really evil being on the loose, and he's going to come around. Be ready for him. God, there's no... no a mention about God even warning them. They are completely unsuspecting of the evil that is about to overtake them. Satan is so well hidden that there's no defenses. Adam and Eve, are, they're not talking to someone as if they're on a defensive mode. They haven't, they haven't um, uh, had the warnings of Christ to, you know, Beware of Satan and his deceptions. None of that's gone on. I really do believe that had he been truthful with who he was, Adam and Eve would have said, no thanks, I don't want you here. (laughs) 
Satan, in his craftiness, approaches the woman. Now, it's not crafty because she's a woman and she's more gullible. It's crafty in the sense that she was not the one who heard the very command of God. She has this command, but she has it second hand through Adam's word. And so Satan knows this. Satan begins his craftiness not with an opposition to God, simply with a question. Did God actually say? Now this question is given to incite distrust. That's the purpose. It's not just a statement of, oh, is that what he really said? No, it's, are you kidding me? That's the command God gave you? Is God so harsh as to give you that command? He doesn't declare God's harshness, but that's what he's trying to incite into the heart of Eve. You can almost hear her saying things like, You know, why would God put that tree in front of us and then tell us not to eat it? Just the seed of the hint that God is not good. God is a bit harsher than what you originally thought. He takes this command to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he says, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And I believe Satan knows that he's going to be corrected by her on this. Because his, his idea is not to actually teach her something that's blatantly wrong. He just wants enough of a doubt in her heart that God is harsh. See, instead of this ocean of good things that you're allowed to do, you can eat from any tree in the garden. Isn't that a wonderful God that gives you all of this blessing and there's one tree you can't eat from? Instead, it begins to feel like this one tree is the very essence of what is good. He's holding back on us. And there begins to be a subtle dissatisfaction in the heart of Eve. Now, I'm going to tell you that there are countless ways that Satan deceives our hearts. But they all begin with this one. That somehow, in some way, God is not as good as you thought he was. Somehow, some way, God is restricting you from happiness. And so in verse true, the woman says to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the trees that is in the midst of the garden, neither or neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And even as Eve corrects the serpent, you can see how the subtleties of deception are already working in her heart. Where does she come up with 
neither shall you touch it. I think it arises from an already the beginnings of doubt in her heart that God is good. She is correcting the serpent words and developing her own lies at the same time. It's as if she were saying, God may just as well have prohibited us from eating any of the trees. He sure has prohibited us from eating this one tree. He probably doesn't even want us to get near it. Satan knows that she has bitten the, the, the bait. The hook is in. He pushes on in verses 4 and 5. You will not surely die. Or surely you will not die. Literally, the Hebrew reads, dying, you do not die. Now understand at this point, Eve has never experienced death. She has no idea what death is. But who does know what spiritual death is? Satan. He's well aware of what spiritual death is. He has been already judged and separated from the goodness of God. He has experienced evil ruling in his heart. And his words make perfect sense. Dying, you do not die. I know. I did what you, what I want you to do. And I'm still living. God's threat is just an idle threat. And she's sitting there not knowing, thinking, well, maybe, maybe when God says that you're die, maybe that's just an idle threat. Now, you wouldn't start thinking that way unless you already had been doubting the goodness of God. And that what God says is true. And so she's thinking, just maybe, just maybe God had other reasons for giving me this command. Maybe it wasn't for our protection. Maybe he was afraid of our advancement. Verse 5, for God knows, Satan says, that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. Yeah, the reality is God knows that if you partake of this fruit, you are going to be a rival to him. And he's afraid of that. And at this point, I think that we begin to see that deception is a spell. I'm not talking magic, but some kind of a, a spell that you begin to to follow down this road that God is not good and he's not who he says he is and you begin to doubt him. It's like you fall into this spell and you think you're thinking logically and you're not. How ludicrous is this? If God were really afraid that Eve would be like him, would he put the tree in the middle of the Garden of Eden? Eden? Would he actually do that? He could have put it up on top of Mount Everest or something. Or not created it at all. Or he could have put a guard around it at the beginning like he did when he kicked him out of the garden. 
she thinks, oh, yeah, this is making sense. Yeah, God doesn't want me to be like him. And all the while, she is thinking like a fool. It's easy for us who are outside of the spell of the temptation to go, man, that's just stupid. But when you're under the spell of the temptation, it makes sense. Have you not felt that in your own life? As you go down the path towards sin, it just seems like well, this, is, this makes sense. And then later on when God break, breaks the spell and he brings you out of that and you, you actually begin to go, come to your senses and you say, that was the dumbest thing I ever did. What a fool I was. This is the way deception works. And I happen to think, as Dan said, what is happening? I think our whole world is lying under deception. And that's not to say that we still don't struggle with deception in our own hearts. It's just, it's easy to see when it's happening to someone else. It's harder to see when you're under that spell. You see, once you begin to understand that God is not good, once you begin to question that, then what do you start looking for as the source of your happiness? Well, it's got to be in the fruit itself, in the thing that you don't have. And that's what happens. She starts looking at the fruit and she starts saying, that is good. If I can get that fruit, I will be happy. This is what happens every time we sin. We divorce happiness from God and say, God, I can leave you in order to get happiness. That's the deception that occurs when you sin. In addition, as another aspect of this, is you begin to say, I don't want to submit to God's standard of what is right and wrong. I will come up with my own standard. Thank you very much. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. I mean, come on. It was a rather arbitrary decision of God to put this one tree in the garden and say to eat that one is evil. Well, if he can make that choice, if he can just say, well, this tree's good, this tree's bad, why can't I come up with that? Why can't I be the one to decide what is good and what is not good? Why do I have to submit to his will? And I hope you're hearing Jesus' words and how different he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not my will, but yours be done. See how he's submitting to the will of his Father? Satan's temptation, his deception, is that the way to actually have freedom and happiness is to make up your own rules. Be the one to decide what is right and wrong. Now, in all of this, Satan has not once forced Eve to do anything, has he? He has just incited doubt. He has twisted. He has worked deception in every way possible. And now she is convinced this is the way to her happiness. He's like a fisherman, puts the hook in. And I'm not a big fisherman, so I'm going to mess up this illustration. But I know that sometimes when you're deep sea fishing, you catch a big fish. You catch the fish, but then you just let the fish go for a long time, right? 
fish goes its own way. Isn't it interesting at this point, as Satan's putting the hook in there, he wants control of, of Eve. That's what he wants. He wants to be her master. But he tells her, oh, you get to do what you want to do. What a pot of lies. It's like once the hook is in the fish and you let the fish keep going its own way, all the while you know you're going to reel that baby back in. And that's what he's doing to her. The woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, and she took the fruit and ate it, and gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. One of the subtleties of sin in our world, I try not to do this too much, but <laughs> make these applications, I want you to do that as you listen, but one of the subtleties is that Sometimes Satan just blatantly tries to get someone to do that which is evil. But sometimes he just says, hey, live your life according to your reason rather than in submission to God in his will. And uh, the attack on the word of God is a part and parcel with that. <clears throat> now, in the history of mankind, until the coming of Jesus Christ... No series of acts have had more an effect than the ones said in this verse. She took the fruit and ate, gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. That, that has more effect on this world than any other short series of acts until Christ comes. Satan must have been rejoicing. But follow this progression. Eve eats the fruit. Does anything happen? Nothing. I thought she was going to die. Maybe Satan was right after all. Isn't that true? Sometimes like, I just chose to sin. Nothing happened. I'm good. <laughs> no. It seems to say that she, he was watching the whole dialogue. He was a part of it, watching. Some people want to stress that he's already sinning because he's not protecting her. I, I get that. It connects to the man's right to protect. But at the same time, the passage doesn't talk about his sin until he eats the fruit. But I will say this, that in watching Eve, it was probably pretty convincing to him that maybe the Satan was right, the serpent was right. Because he said, surely you're not going to die. Well, she ate the fruit and she didn't die. I think Satan is crafty here too. I think he knows that Eve will, um, you know, Adam loves Eve. He's been brought to her. He's act, she's actually his greatest strength. And now Satan is using her to pull Adam away from God. Adam chooses Eve rather than God. He's not deceived in that. He knows what he's doing is wrong and he chooses Eve over God. It is at that moment, after he eats, that the eyes of their hearts are opened. Satan got that right. Their eyes were opened, but they were not made like God. He got that wrong. And they experienced nakedness. 
Now, there's a physical uh, expression of this nakedness. It's a good thing that you're all wearing clothes here today and you're covering your nakedness. But this nakedness of the heart is really the issue that's happening, right? The futility of the fig leaves is, is just that the, you can't cover your sin by just putting on a garment. And it's at this point that God shows up. And you can see God's sovereignty in all this. What if he knew what was going on? What if he showed up ten minutes earlier? Whoa, let's stop this. He could have. God is omnipresent. But it's interesting in this passage that there are, there's, a, there's a regular time where Adam would meet with God and he'd walk in the cool of the day and there'd be this, this sense of fellowship between them. Only this time, what do they do? They hide. And I think this is the most terrible effect of sin. It's the reason why I split up this passage in Genesis 3 and didn't go into the curse section. Because we are tempted to think that it's the curse on the earth and death and all those physical death and all those kind of things that's the worst part of sin. It is not. The worst part of sin is right here in this passage. They are hiding from God because they experience shame in their hearts. That's the real problem. Rather than fellowship with God be something that is natural, and you just say, oh, God's coming. Isn't that great? I want to be with him. Instead, when you feel the presence of God, you run and hide. Adam and Eve do not need to be taught this. Your society today, young people hear this, they tell you that the reason why we feel shame is because religion teaches it to you. It's been thrust upon you by evil men who teach religion. It's false. Nothing could be further from the truth. They try to tell you the lie that if you could just get rid of those conservative Christians who actually believe the Bible, then everyone would be happy and peaceful. It's a lie. Guilt and fear are hardwired into us. But you know what is not hardwired into you? The experience of mercy. You see, Satan's deception is not finished. Before Adam and Eve sin, he wants them to minimize the resulting reality of the coming death. But now that sin has occurred, Satan forms a new strategy. He wants to convince Adam and Eve that God will not be merciful. Why else would they run? But see, he's already put that same seed in because God is not good. So rather than fleeing to a good God who will give mercy to you when you repent and come to Him, no, let's run from Him and hide from Him. And wonder of all wonders, Satan, I mean God, says, you can run all you want, but you can't hide. Man is entirely responsible for breaking his covenant relationship with God. But God is the one who takes the initiative to repair the relationship. 
You see, everything about the recovery of this moment is God coming back onto the scene and saying, let's start dispelling the deception and let's start speaking truth to you. Is it any wonder that Jesus says, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free? Freedom never comes through lies. It comes through the truth. God comes to Adam, asks him where he is. Of course, he knows where he is. Adam is honest, but he's not really dealing with the hard issues. Truthfulness is kind of like an onion, right? Are you getting at the core of the problem, or are you just kind of peeling back the layers? God says, wait a minute. Somebody did something really wrong here. He's slowly bringing Adam to, to accept and take responsibility for his wrong. But rather than coming to a full confession of guilt, Adam uses this time to shift the blame, right? The woman that you gave me. Now, some people like to focus on the woman, like it's her fault. That's not really what he's getting at. He's saying the woman that you gave me. It's your fault. And what amazes me at this point is the gentleness of God. I mean, can you imagine Adam telling God that it's his fault? I might be mad as a dad if my kid came to me and said that their sin was my fault. Who do you think you are blaming me for your evil? Instead, God is very gentle and very patient. He goes to Eve, what, what's going on here? Eve, what are you doing in this? Eve's response, I think, is better than Adam's. It's not great. She doesn't really blame God for her actions. She just speaks the truth. The serpent deceived me, and I hate. And I think this is very helpful to us. Her statement is true. It's not a full confession, but it is true. You see, sometimes we want to talk about sin as if deception is not real. And sometimes we want to talk about deception in, in such a way that it makes us irresponsible. But the reality is, you sin because you're deceived. And your sinning is your responsibility. Both of those are true, and it's, it's in this text. It's right there. Now, I've tried to restrain through most of this of jumping to the conclusions of how do we deal with this today, but I hope you're making some of those connections. You know, Satan continues to deceive us today. He didn't go on vacation after the garden. Okay? I did it. Fine. Let it roll from here. No, he's continually causing hearts to doubt the goodness of God. 2 Corinthians 11.3, Paul says, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And although the, the specifics of the way that he's uh, Forming doubt and deception in your heart are, are different in every situation. I mean, we could all talk about the ways in which we've been deceived. The strategy is the same. He's always working to incite in your heart 
doubt of the goodness of God. Always. He doesn't want you to think that God is good. He wants you to think that God is harsh, that He's unloving. He wants to sever the tie between holiness and happiness. He wants to sever the tie between God and happiness. He wants you to trust your own wisdom as to what is right and wrong rather than God's. And he wants to incite dissatisfaction in your heart. He wants you to be discontent and that you begin to believe that God is the one holding you back from happiness. And he begins to cloud the reality of the death that your disobedience will cause. But I don't believe Genesis 3 is given to us simply so that you can be wiser. I believe that Genesis 3 is given to you so that you can better understand what happened to the creation. And I think that Genesis 3 helps us to see Jesus Christ and what he has truly done for us. You see, as we read in our scripture readings this morning, Jesus is the only one who had to face the fullness of the brunt of Satan's deceptions. He sat there and he took it all from Satan. And being full of the Spirit and relying on the Word of God, he defeats Satan's deception. And then in the garden, rather than striving to get more, as if there's something that's held out there that God is holding back on him, Jesus says, I submit myself to the will of the Father because that's where life is. Is it any wonder that Paul says, you should have the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus? Genesis 3 explains the power of deception. And in the New Testament, Christ overcomes that deception. He breaks the spell. Now, kind of practically as Christians, I want to... Satan will still tempt you to sin, but he also works to deceive you after you have sinned. He deceives you into thinking that you should hide yourself from God. He deceives you into thinking that you should be a victim and blame others for your sin. He deceives you into thinking that you can do something good and that good will atone for your sins. And he deceives you into doubting the sufficiency of God's mercy. That Christ is not, alone, not enough to sufficiently cleanse me from my sins. And lastly, he deceives us into thinking that you can never be free from your sin. In the garden, we see that the inception of deception. But in Jesus Christ, we see the beginning of the destruction of Satan's work of deception. And so I want to take you to the final question in the first catechism. Question 150. Because I, I began by asking you the, or telling you that God wants you to be happy. Listen to 150. What will the new heaven and the new earth be like? A glorious, 
and happy place where the saved will be with Jesus forever. Amen.